This is the Blattcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world, hosted by Christian Blatt. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blattcast. Joining me now is musician Jeff Pilsen, whom you may know from Dawkins, Lynch Mob, Foreigner, and uh, from a whole other uh, bunch of uh, things that we'll talk about during the course of our conversation. But we're here to talk to him today about The End Machine. They have a new album out called Phase Two, which is available now. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you, man. Good to be here. And, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, right before it came out, I talked to Robert Mason about the album and uh, I had told him how much I was really enjoying it. I was listening to it a lot, you know, ramping up to it. And uh, I told him at that point that uh, my favorite song on it was Crack the Sky. And I think at the, that point he's like, well, funny enough, that's our that's our next single. And I know there's a video now. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I wanted to kind of start right there uh we'll kind of talk about end machine as a whole but let's uh talk a little bit about that song and uh you know how how people have responded to the album because it's been out for about two months now and uh talk a little bit about the selection of uh crack the sky all right well um so well that was a large question so <laughs> <laughs> sorry they tend to, they tend to be <laughs> yeah so that's okay um okay basically um okay so yeah you're showing the video there um, the reason we chose that song is it just it's just a catchy song and it's a fun song and I love the message you know a little bit about Big Brothers watching you kind of thing, um, and um, it's just you know the whole record we we really wanted to concentrate on making great songs um, and you know catchy catchy infectious songs that was the, that was the goal with great sure. playing great singing um, and you know we feel like we delivered that it's good to see that a lot of people. Um, are acknowledging that. So it's, it's great. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say, I, you know, this is, this is our place to do melodic hard rock with big, heavy grooves, but great melodies. And, um, um, I just, I'm, I'm very proud of this work. So glad we could be talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, uh, you, you know, filming videos has been part of the business, uh, you know, for a, a lot of your career. Obviously, it's a, it's a lot different now than uh, I'm, I'm sure it was, uh, back, you know, back in the, in the days of uh, doing a docking video. But uh, I, I feel like it's it's cool now that, it, you know, it, it seems like it's whatever the band wants it to be. And a lot of times, you know, I mean, obviously, I talked a little bit to Robert about this. You know, the key was you guys wanted to be outside because, you know, obviously still concerns about COVID. So yeah. then you don't have to worry as much. Uh, and, it, but it, to me, it's just like watching a band play outside. It's like, it's cool. And then it's like, God, who carried those drums up that mountain? You know, I mean, it's just, that's the sort of stuff that it doesn't take me out of it. It just it makes me think about it from a production standpoint. You know, it's like those amps didn't get up there themselves, did they? <laughs> you know? No, they certainly did. <laughs> but uh, talk kind of about, you know, how, sure, you know, MTV isn't what it once was, but how a video can really be such a useful tool. So you might as well uh, have it be something a little cool and tell a little story while you do it. Well, yeah. I mean, you you kind of answered it for me. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, basically, this is the tool that we have nowadays for promoting. I mean, you know, you don't see, you don't hear much hard rock on the radio, um, if any. Um, it's in limited places. Um, but people want to see this music. And, and so uh, basically, social media is used to present these videos. I mean, the budgets aren't like they were, uh, you know, 30 years ago at all. Um, but that's okay because it is more about the music than anything else. And, you know, Robert's a great storyteller. So it's nice when his stories get to be exposed on, on these in, in something like video. Um, I mean, I don't know if you get as much of the message as he intended um, for a lot of this, uh, but it, but it's still, it, you kind of get the, you, you kind of get the point across. And um, I think more than anything, it's just people want to see a band making music. And because of this pandemic, I think we're all starved for live music or something that feels live. And I think when you see a bunch of guys playing outside like this, it kind of feels live. And I think it, people really dig it. And because it is the tool that we use, we just try to make videos that are believable and cool and good to watch. So Hoping, hoping that we we're achieving that, um, but really, you're the one to, to decide that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, look, anytime somebody gets out of a car, it's what we see. We saw just a second ago for those watching the video version. Somebody gets out of a car driving with a guy Fox mask on. uh, It's like, yeah, all right. That's what I want for my videos. You know, it's like, (laughs) don't 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 uh, don't take the time to explain it to me. Just show me cool stuff. And yeah. And look, it doesn't. Yeah, it's not distracting from uh, the music at all. You know, you really get to hear the song. And, uh, you know, the first time I heard uh, I heard the song, uh, it, it was to watch the video version of it. And, uh, you know, I think it, uh, it it helps a lot, you know, to just uh, how the yeah. ease with which, you know, it's like, yeah, just click on this uh, YouTube link. So, uh, yeah, it's obviously great as a tool in, in so many ways like that. And, and, and small piece of trivia, the guy yeah. in the orange jumpsuit that you're seeing there, the yeah. actor. That's D. Snyder's son, Jesse. Wow. <laughs> now, see, that's pretty cool. Now, uh, how uh, I'm going to assume, obviously, you've known D. forever. Uh, how did that oh, come yeah, about? Uh, but actually, that is purely a coincidence. It was the, really. It was the video company. I didn't know until they after after they filmed his part, <laughs> and then I, I texted D. and I said, "You won't believe this," and he was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> well, it, that's actually coincidental, small world stuff that I love. Oh, I love. Yeah, I think that that's even better than it was. Just like, oh yeah, I knew uh, D's son yeah, was no, an actor. No, yeah, I had nothing to do with casting him. It was great. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously, you know, this isn't uh, the the first time you've worked with Robert, and uh, you know, I mean, this is the band's second album, but uh, and you've uh, worked with George a lot over over the years. Uh, you know, since you first got into Dawkins. Uh, so, talk a little bit about what it is about George. I mean, people know him just as, you know, incredibly talented guitar player, but what is it that you keep going back to him? I mean, you've worked with him a, a number of times, you know, on, on Lynch Mob and this and, and other projects as well. Uh, what, uh, what is it about uh, George Lynch that keeps you coming back? Well, you know, George and I kind of, we, we, we kid around, but we're sort of serious when we call each other, our musical soulmates. Um, we just have a chemistry that has always worked. It worked from the very first day he first came over to my, the first day he ever came over to my house to pick me up. I, I just joined the band um, and we were going to go out and do something. He came over to my house. He walked in the door. He saw my guitar sitting there. He picked it up. He started playing. We wrote a song. I mean, that's that's our <laughs> wow. chemistry. That is yeah. how we are. We've just always been like that. Um, we so we bring out the best in each other, I think, and we we. We have a lot of love and respect for one another, um, and we have a common goal uh, always. So, um, and and we enjoy it. I mean, let's face it: life should be enjoyable, and work. You know, making music should be a joy. You know, it shouldn't yeah. be pulling teeth. And a lot of times, it is pulling teeth. And sure, sometimes things are rough, but you have to. I think the overall flow has to be one of enjoyment, and and. And we do. We love working together. I mean, part of it is because we always are very happy with the results we come up with. Sure. I mean, not always. We've had our clunkers too. But, but, um, but as a rule, we just we we really deliver to each other, and and that's a great feeling. So, of course, I'm going to come back to it. Yeah, as uh, just somebody who is just a listener to the music and enjoys it, I think you know w- the idea when the the musicians actually love what they're doing, you can tell the difference. When there there are the guys who it is pulling teeth, it's like, well, you know, we have to do a, another album, even though we hate each other. Uh, it, it it doesn't always come across to that level, but uh, you're like, okay, well, I'm not as excited about this. I might be more excited about that band when they really liked each other, you know. Uh, so I, I think, uh, it, it's great that you're able to continue working with him. Uh, and we'll talk specifically about uh, end machine in a moment, but just sort of going back to, you know, when you first got to know him now to, obviously I know better than to believe everything I read on Wikipedia, but it, they make it sound like you moved to LA and like a couple weeks later you auditioned for Dawkin. Uh, so, uh, obviously you, you had, uh, you'd been in some bands and done uh, a lot uh, in San Francisco and other places before that. But uh, how close is that to the truth? Did you uh, get the opportunity to audition for Dawkins early on into coming into LA? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's not that far from the truth. I, it was really a couple months. I moved. I moved to LA in March of '83, and I joined Dawkins in August of '83. So th- there you go. I when I came down, I joined a top forty band. Um, I, I had auditioned for them before we moved, and then w- when I moved down, I joined them was with them for a couple of months. And then I ended up joining a, um, a band with, with uh, Paul Taylor, who later on, you know, helped form winger. Um, 
Amy Cannon, who is who is no longer with us, unfortunately, but she was one of the nasty habits for Motley Crue in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, Mark Nelson, who's still a dear friend, and and uh, he is um, he's a big, 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 big cheese at Roland Instrument Corporation now. He was a great drummer. Um, uh, and and we, ha we had a band together um, uh, for a while, and Dawkins came to see me with that band, and that was what I was doing right before I joined Dawkins. So uh, not too far from the truth. Um, right. You know. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, obviously it, it, uh, it seems like there was obviously so much going on in L.A. at that time. The fact that the, the band that you then end up, join, uh, you know, leaving to join, you join Dokken and uh, have you know all that success with them, and uh, obviously have a, a great run there, uh, and you know continuing to play with George uh, over this time. And uh, End Machine wasn't the first time you worked with uh, Robert because I know that he oh. had had a, he'd had some stints with uh, Lynch Mob. But how does that's you actually, know? And, and I what's what's that? Sorry. Well, you know, I actually wasn't in the Lynch Mob. Um, oh. I have played on Lynch Mob Records, and I've right. bass on a couple songs, and I've done keyboards for them. And, you know, and I mean, because we're close friends, I you know I, I'll always do what I can to help. Sure, yeah. But, uh, but I was actually never in the band. But I I did work with Robert uh, on the 2015 Warrant record, Louder, Harder, Faster. Okay. And I have known Robert since he joined the Lynch Mob, which I believe was '92 or three. Yeah. Like that. Um, and I knew him, and I knew he was great, and all that. But I first got to really work with him in 2015 when we did the Warrant record. And that was when I realized how how much talent he had, both as a writer. I mean, I, I knew about his voice. That was that was never a yeah. question in any, in any way. Um, but I got to see his work ethic. I got to see what a great writer he was. Um, and, and like I say, his work ethic. He He's a hard worker and he, he gets the job done. And um, so I knew... As, and then it was Serafino from Frontiers Records that suggested him for what was, you know, then the the original Dokken lineup minus Don, which was Wild McBrown, George, and myself. Yeah. Um, and when Robert was suggested as the drummer, huh, it was a no-brainer because I knew how great it'd be. And sure, he sure has come through. Yeah, and when I uh, talked to Robert about it, I think that uh, you know the thing that he was most interested in was that this wasn't a project where it's docking with Robert Mason singing, you know, and it uh, it doesn't, you know, obviously George is going to sound like George, you're going to sound like you, but it doesn't sound like docking at all. So talk about approaching this project, you know, in, in a way where it's like, yeah, but it's probably I would say stuff that it's certainly it's not similar to what Robert does on the, the, you know, the, the new warrant records that he's done with them. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like it seemed to me to be a little bit different than what, you know, people maybe had heard from you guys before. You know, it was a little bit different. All right. Not sure what the question was, but what I will say is, <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, our, our first record, we, uh, we, we were, uh, we were kind of experimenting a little bit and, um, you know, we kind of wanted to try some different things on this record. We knew we wanted to really focus on great songs and really, you know, great choruses and that whole thing. Um, so the writing was a little more uh, focused this time. Um, sure. And to be honest with you, when there were moments when things did kind of sound a little like docking, we just said to ourselves, you know what? That's cool. That's who we are. You know, George and I wrote a lot of the music for docking, so it's not gonna be, that would not be crazy so we didn't police ourselves as much and we kind of felt like okay if it sounds like that that's cool um let's just make sure it's a great song and that's what we did and i feel like what we have is we do have our own identity sure it's reminiscent of a Dokken or lynch mob or whatever that's that like you say that's just only natural um yeah. but we're kind of finding this place that i'm really really happy with which is you know there is it is definitely melodic rock it is definitely um, you know, the kind of music that Dokken made, but we're just trying to do a slightly updated, but um, aggressive, complete version of that. And that's what I feel like we've done. And uh, I talked a little bit to Robert about this, but uh, I think it's interesting for the second record that, uh, you know, Mick basically retired from drumming. So uh, I love the approach of, well, let's keep it in the family. And, yeah. uh, and you have his brother as a drummer. And I remember, I think you were on with, Eddie Trunk a couple months ago, somewhere in that range. I remember him saying, like, yeah, I didn't even know that Mick had a brother, let alone that he was a drummer. So, uh, yeah, obviously that wasn't going to be like, oh, yeah, his brother's a drummer. Let's just use him. Talk about you know, the realization of, like, well, this is the this is the perfect guy to have sit in, you know, on, on this record. 
Well, um, you know, we've known Steve since he was 15 years. I've known Steve since he was 15. George has known him like even, I think he was like four or something when George met him. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we knew Steve was a great drummer. We knew, you know, and he's been drumming for a long time. He, you know, he played with us at a sound check like 35 years ago or something. So we knew he could play. Um, I didn't realize how good he was though. Um, we, you know, when, when Mick decided to retire, Mick, Mick, uh, Mick had made the suggestion somewhere like, oh, you know, my brother, he's really great. Um, and then we watched some videos and then, then we had a meeting and George said, we should really call his brother. And we're like, okay. And it turns out he came down here. He was completely prepared. Not only is he a great drummer, but he's great in the studio. And he was really able to make the tracks feel good on the fly. And not every drummer can do that. It's not the easiest thing to do, to take tracks that have already been recorded and then put the drums on it and make it feel like you're really playing together. And he did that. Um, and he was able to just put all this energy into it. And then it turns out he's got this great singing voice, like, like his brother Mick. Um, so I, I mean, we, I feel like we hit the lottery with that. I mean, we, it could have gone so far South, but it ended up being great. <laughs> he's, he's a great player, great singer, great guy. Um, he's the perfect guy for the band. I mean, it's just, that is just not an exaggeration. And, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the process of, uh, collaborating, obviously, uh, when you guys would have been putting the album together, were you able to get together at all? Or was it early enough in quarantine where people maybe weren't comfortable with it or, uh, you know, were you sending each other different tracks or how did it work in terms of actually putting the music together? Well, we, we did, the writing took place remotely, right. uh, and actually all of George's tracks were recorded remotely, um, now, George doesn't live far from me, but because it was still COVID time and still no uh, no vaccine or anything, um, he did all his tracks remotely. Fortunately, there's some technology now where I can run his studio from my studio. Oh, um, wow. We would con we would talk via Skype, and then I would you know we record as if I was in the room, only I was in my room. It's a little it was a little different, wasn't quite as intimate as as we'd like, but it also kind of helped to make it to keep us real focused and perhaps make things a little simpler. Um, the writing, the uh, so the music, George and I wrote all remotely, um, but because we have such a great chemistry, it wasn't that difficult. We had also just done a record together called Heavy Hitters, which is us doing cover songs, which is really fun. It also made a great experimentation uh, vehicle because we learned how to do this remote thing during that. That was really early in COVID. Um, so the writing, we, we wrote the music remotely, then we had a lot of three-way conversations on Zoom with Robert at the beginning of the of the writing process, just to make sure we were all on the same page as far as how the songs were going. And then Robert would take it away and, and do a lot of the lyrics himself, where he did an amazing job. Um, so a lot of the writing was done ahead of time remotely. But then Robert and Steve both recorded their tracks here in person because it was late enough then that things were starting to get cool. Yeah, and I feel like uh, you know trading the the tracks sort of digitally like that is one thing, but if you were to actually try and record them, I feel like getting the the vibe with everybody actually in the studio. I'm f I'm sure that uh, everybody was happier with the sound than you know if you had been in three separate locations. Sure. Uh, well, obviously, when you have a project like this, people uh, always want to know, and I think that. The End Machine has played, uh, I believe, a total of three live shows uh, for the first album. So are there plans to uh, double that with maybe three more for the second album at some point? I, I obviously I know the problem is always when you, know, you guys are all in other bands, you know, and sure. that always comes first. I know you've got some foreigner dates coming up. Robert has a, a lot of uh, Warrant stuff coming up because right. we're doing the 30th anniversary of Cherry Pie. And uh, George is always busy. So uh, is it some? Is it one of those things where like, well, we hope we can do it, but you don't know how uh, viable it really is yeah. to do live shows. <laughs> Just like you said. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to do. I don't, I, I kind of think it's not going to happen for this album cycle. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we have our, we have, we're thinking long term with this anyway. So hopefully somewhere down the line, long term, we'd love to go to Japan. Um, and uh, so, like I say, hopefully long term, we'll get to do anything. Probably not on this album cycle, but uh, because, yes, my schedule is really getting busy with Foreigner now. Um, yeah. And and yeah, life, life is coming back. So um, live shows, I don't necessarily see them right now, but hopefully in the future. 
Well, speaking of Foreigner, uh, I did uh, take a quick look and I saw that there are, you know, a, a lot of bands you'll talk to. It's like, yeah, we've got some stuff in the works, but Foreigner has actual announced dates uh, and people can find those at foreigneronline.com. And uh, you've been in the band for, it, it, it's about 20 years now, right? You've you've well, been in- 17, yeah. 17, okay, yeah. So <laughs> at, least, at least I wasn't too far off and you didn't go, no, no it's been four, <laughs> you know. I, but uh, so talk about just uh, obviously just being a part of that, you know, I'm I'm sure, you know, when you were first at this point, I'm sure you, you know, you know, everybody, you're so familiar with the the whole situation, but coming into the band, no doubt being a band that, you know, you, you probably loved when you were younger, you heard them on the radio all the time and like, wow, those are great songs. Never thinking like, oh yeah, one day I'll be in that band, you know? All right. Well, again, not sure of the question, but um, the question I, is, what was it like? Yeah. You know, I, I know it's it's sort of like resting on a lot of other stuff. The question is basically, what was it like when you just sort of were like, oh, I'm in Foreigner now? You know, it, it was it, it, I can imagine what it was like, you know, growing up, no doubt being a fan. And now it's like, oh, here I am, you know. Right. Well, uh, it was easier than you might think, because a lot of people think, well, Foreigner, isn't that way way different than Dokken or Dio or whatever. And um, maybe on some levels, but uh, as far as live performance, no. I mean, Foreigner Live is a pretty high energy rock band, um, which is kind of what I've always done. So um, joining it was very natural for me. I loved the records. I love the songs. Uh, Lou Graham's voice is one of my favorite of all times. And I think Mick is just brilliant. I love his guitar playing and I love his songwriting and I love him personally now, of course, too. Um, so joining the band was actually very, very natural for me. Um, and just to, I mean, I, I would never have dreamed I'd be in it this long, but yeah. uh, it turned out to be such a great band and such a great gig um, uh, I, that I'm very, very grateful. So, so for me, it was always a question of, wow, um, I love this music. I love this organization. I love the people. Um, I, I, I just look at it as, as a grateful situation. And uh, obviously, you know, the fact that the tour is coming up, this is uh, definitely the summer. You know, people are very excited because it seems uh, pretty much everywhere you live, although there a lot of bands don't have a lot of uh, a lot of dates announced right here in Los Angeles. But you have some for in the fall you're starting to hear. Uh, so people in the country as a whole, they're so excited. Like, oh, I find this is the summer. I finally get to go to concerts again. Uh, I don't know if you've played live much, but uh, I'm going to assume that when you go out with Foreigner, it'll be the first time you're sort of in, in sort of a big venue like that are you looking forward to finally getting back out on the road and and playing for you know a big crowd of people who you know are hungry for live music well we've actually done four shows already okay and 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 it was great um it it was really great being back in front of people um so and yes people are hungry for music so the answer to your question is uh it was great and um this will be a summer where live music is coming back and foreigner. Yes. We're, we're going to be hitting all, we're going to be going all around the country very, very soon. So um, yeah, live music's coming. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and uh, I know it's, it, it's a while ago now, but uh, you were in, in the band uh, for the, the film Rockstar, uh, which, uh, you know, the, the steel dragon band. And that was, you know, that movie was, they, they basically optioned the story of Tim Ripper Owens becoming right. the lead singer of Judas Priest. Sure. And then sure. when the movie gets made, it's not that at all. So by the time you come in, I assume they'd already gotten away from that. It wasn't like you thought you were going to play Judas Priest music. Did they hire you guys? It's like, okay, you're going to come up with music that is believable or what, where was this film in the process when, when you first, uh, got involved with it um well they had they they had chosen a bunch of the songs um but i got involved early enough they actually wanted to do the music so we first so we did the Mm -hmm. music before we started filming and that's how i got involved i was actually brought in originally just as a session bass player to play on the music right Uh, and then the director watched us rehearse and and he liked the chemistry that he saw so they offered me the part which was which was pretty cool um but no we we uh we did. It was it was our job to kind of carve a sound, uh, which was really fun, and it was great to work with Zach on that and Jason Bonham. Um, yeah. So we we did. We kind of built the Steel Dragon sound, which was which was great. And we we the, like I say, the songs were kind of there, and then we just kind of arranged them to be how this band Steel Dragon would do it, which was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you know, I think it gave the movie 
a certain level of authentic authenticity that I don't know if it would have had uh, without that. Yeah, because obviously if they had had, you know, you guys record the music and then just hired a bunch of actors, especially if it was actors who didn't know how to play their instruments, which I'm not going to call out specific movies, but I, 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 I'm not musically talented, but I can tell when somebody doesn't know how to play a guitar, just the sure. way they hold it. So uh, I think that's a, a smart move on the director is like, yeah, but how about just these guys play it now? Mm -hmm. I know that some of the performance stuff they recorded, uh, I was reading that they recorded at the sports arena. Uh, here in LA. So talk about, you know, even though, you know, you're not really, I assume not really performing live live, but you're there in front of a crowd with Mark Wahlberg as, as your front man. Was it, was it surreal or was it like, ah, oh, this is just sort of like a gig and, and, you know, people that were there kind of knew what they were, what they were watching. You know, it wasn't like they were surprised that this was for a movie shoot. Um, well, there was, there was two different phases. Um, we did, we did a month at the sports arena and they would have, uh, I forget. I think it was 250 extras every day oh, Okay, that were supposed to be there. Then, uh, so those people all, they were all professional actors, basically. So that was, that was very, it, it was still fun, though. It, it had a real vibe of fun and kind of a carefree vibe about it. Um, you know, we kind of got to know some of the people in the audience. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. But then we, on, um, to, to sum it all up, we did actually have a show and Megadeth and, I forget who else played, but I know that Megadeth headlined a free show that we had at the sports arena in order for us to be able to do crowd scenes with a full, full, right. uh, full arena. Um, and that was, you know, that was 10,000 or whatever people um, filled in there. And that was, that was really fun. No, no, we had to go up ahead of time and tell them, look, we're, we're filming a movie. So we're going to do the same song over again a few times, you know, but the crowd got it. It's an LA crowd. They know what movies are. Yeah. Um, and it was actually really fun, and it did actually feel like a real show, which is, which is also another intangible element that I think helps make the movie feel a little more authentic. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and that seems to be one of those movies that uh, you know people have found in the decades since. And uh, you know, yeah. they, I, I think it, it. Look, I think that the the story of Tim Ripper Owens is an interesting one, mm -hmm. but I think it being a unique fictional band, I think sort of uh, it, it gives it sort of a wider appeal, and I can see why people are, are excited to you know just check it out. It, it seems to be one of yeah. the, uh, one of those kind of projects. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and we'll circle back to uh, End Machine to make sure. Everybody knows uh, where to find out everything. Uh, you spent uh, some time in Dio, and I just wanted to kind of ask you, just thinking back on you know somebody working with somebody like Ronnie, uh, you know who, you know it's like sort of if there if there was a heavy metal Mount Rushmore, obviously Ronnie would have been on it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just just talk about what it was like to contribute and and work collaborate with Ronnie James Dio. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie was fantastically talented. I mean, his singing is obvious, but he was a great band leader. Um, he was a wonderful friend. Um, you know, it was, it was a very, very special magical part of my life. And I'm, I'm, I still think about him a lot. I still think about that band a lot. Um, it was, it was just a real highlight of my career and, you know, I'll always be grateful for it. Yeah, no, no, I can imagine that. Uh, and, you know, I, when I was putting the notes together, I just something completely different. This is sort of a, of a, of a tangent. But uh, I, I had read that uh, there was a, a project you did that uh, I, I admit that I wasn't familiar with, uh, Underground Moon, and they did a cover of uh, Midnight Oil's Beds Are Burning, which I've always thought was a great song. But it's this, like, really heavy version of that song. And uh, I don't know, I feel like that must have been fun to take right. you know, take a great song and like, yeah, but we're going to kind of deconstruct it and do it completely yeah, yeah. differently. It was. It was very, very, very fun. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's a great song. Um, and yeah, I, I totally enjoyed doing that. That was that was a fun album. I forgot we did that. <laughs> yeah, well, great. I'm glad I'm glad I can remind you, you know. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And uh yeah, and, and it, it got it got a play on YouTube today because I was oh, watching it earlier. So you see, yeah. <laughs> so if you get those on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, come on, everything's on YouTube. Yeah, you're well, right. Jeff, look, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Oh, I really, pleasure, really love the, the well, I love yeah, I love both end machine records, but I really like this one. It's great. called phase two. Obviously, people can get it everywhere. 
uh, all sorts of uh, vinyl options, digitally, CD and everything like that. And uh, for people to just find you, it it couldn't be easier. You're at Jeff Pilsen on Twitter, jeffpilsen.com. And a lot of times on Instagram. What's that? The real Jeff Pilsen on Instagram. The real Jeff Pilsen. Oh, because uh, somebody probably got it and was yeah, like, probably. "Like, yeah, I'll give it to you, Jeff, for a million dollars." No, I'll yeah. just put a, I'll just put a real in front of it, and it's fine. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Jeff, uh, I've I've been a fan forever, so I really Thank appreciate you. you chatting with me, My and uh, looking forward to more End Machine, and uh, hopefully a live show, maybe 2022, 2023. Yeah. You know, you never know. It's possible. <laughs> thanks again, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much again. Awesome. That is Jeff Pilsen from The End Machine. Phase 2 available right now wherever you find your music. Bye-bye, kids. Joining me now is Andre Como, who has a great new song called Clean Break. Welcome to the show, Andre. Hi there. Nice to be here. Now, the new song is great. I can't wait to talk to you about it and music in general. But uh, with speaking to you, there's obviously a fairly obvious place we should start, which is the fact that most people know you as Andre, the musician from the first season of The Real World. And I'm sure you've answered the question uh, more than you've said, hi, my name's Andre. But uh, it's always kind of fascinating to think about that group of people because there wasn't really reality television in this country the way we now know it at that point. So when you first hear about it, uh, you know, you're in a band at that point, you hear MTV's doing a series, obviously there's some appeal in that respect, but what was it going to be as far as you knew in the, you know, when you first heard about, oh, I'd like to try and get on that show. Sure. Yeah. Well, they sold it to me as a documentary style television show, which would feature my life. Uh, And at the time, my life revolved around my band, which they were very aware of. And I I assume was one of the reasons that they uh, reached out to me to begin with. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, you know, that uh, the the show did uh, so many different incarnations, but uh, that that first group being so iconic and it's so well cast because everybody was truly so different. Uh, and, you know, you hear about it and then in the actual production uh, is the the filming of it what you expected or is it like, oh, they're really, you know, filming like everything. I thought I thought that maybe they'd go to bed at night and uh, <laughs> give me a break, you know. Well, it's funny because, you know, they really, um, being uh, a part of that first season, they hadn't really got it down to a science yet. Uh, They, you know, um, at the time, uh, uh, the schedule was about 80 hours a week. um, And they posted the schedule at the beginning of every week, letting us know what days will be dark, meaning they won't be filming. um, And, uh, uh, and there, you know, there were, um, most times where uh, it was over by say 11, 12 o'clock. Oh, okay. So, so, you know, as time went on, they expanded that schedule to a 24 uh, seven kind of filming schedule, um, uh, which was the case um, at the reunion. Sure. Yeah. Those cameras were running 24 <laughs> seven and there was no escape. And that was a little different because we didn't, you know, we didn't have that, uh, that same serious, uh, yeah. schedule. Uh, ours was much more structured and possibly, you know, a little lighter. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you're talking about the, the original schedule and I'm thinking, uh, I, you know, I'm not a, a, a huge Jersey shore fan, but I can certainly understand why it was the phenomenon it was. And if you ever turned off those cameras, you would have probably missed why people liked that show. You know, you would have, you know, if, if they turned off the Jersey Shore cameras at 11 o'clock at night, it's like, oh, we don't have anything, you know, right. because it's like all the trouble happens, you know, happens later. You're so uh, the drama when you turn. Yeah. Off. And, and, you know, I, they learned their lesson because they did miss a lot of the of the action that went on after the cameras were off or on days that were dark. Um, a lot of things happened and they had to, in some instances, uh, rush a crew over there as things were happening um, just to catch the aftermath, um, uh, which, you know, uh, they, they did their best, but th- no one really knew 
what it was going to shape up to be. Yeah, and obviously it's a lot cheap. It's a lot more affordable to just record all the time now that everything's digital. I mean, not that videotape was particularly expensive, but it's like, well, where are we going to put all this? That if we're filming all the time, you know. And it so. wasn't just the the digital aspect. I mean, uh, when um, when I did our our season, um, you know, it was a it was a cameraman and then someone behind him humping cable and a sound crew was with them yeah. at all times. So you're talking about for every camera a crew of three, four people um, just for that one camera. And nowadays, you know, you can have a camera on this wall, on that wall, on that wall and yeah. they're digital. And, and in a pinch, you can hold up this, my cell phone and you're like, you know what? That's not perfect, but it's usable. We're going to use right. that too. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, your band that you were in at that point, uh, rain dance, uh, I'm sort of wondering what was the impact on the band, you know, so you were on this show, obviously you become some degree of famous because you're on MTV. And so you have this band, what was the, uh, immediate impact of being on MTV, you know, really every day at that point. And, uh, what did that mean for your band at that year? Well, you know, the band that we, I, I, I know that, uh, the band didn't last for too many more years after that. So I, I kind of know the, the, the ultimate answer, but in the immediacy, what was the impact of being on MTV? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it gave us, it afforded us massive exposure. Um, and we overnight became, uh, very, you know, visible to hundreds of thousands of, of uh, music fans. So we immediately took the band on the road. Um, and um, uh, uh, we probably weren't as prepared as we should have been um, having uh, an album ready to go. Uh, we sort of um, took our time and uh, wanted to, you know, um, launch a, uh, 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 a major album after the after the show, but what we should have done um, is actually, you know, finished the record during the filming and had something ready to release for the uh, for when the show came out. Um, that would have served us much better because as it as it was, we ended up, you know, releasing our first album roughly maybe sixteen months after the show aired, um, which was you know at the time. Uh, uh, wasn't wasn't uh, an enormous amount of time, but it was enough time to to go by to let some of that um, uh, momentum uh, fade a little bit. Yeah, and uh, in in seeing you uh, talk about it, I know that uh, you know the band uh, broke up in uh, 1997, and then you moved to LA and you did a a folk band for a while called River Rouge. And the reason I mention it is you know, your new video, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Clean Break, watching it on your YouTube channel, the autoplay next video was this great song called Black Licorice from uh, River Rouge. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, this is great too. You know, and, I, and then I realized it's, it's a different sound for sure. But it's, uh, so talk a little bit about how, you know, sure that band went away and, and now you've got the solo band, but it seems like just because you weren't on TV, it's not like you, you stopped making music. No, to, to the contrary. I I, uh, I played music um, throughout. Uh, in uh, the early 2000s, I kind of, uh, you know, I just kind of got a little bored of where rock music, heavy rock music was was going. And, um, and I uh, fell into acoustic music pretty heavily. Um, I got really into um, some, you know, uh, acoustic and, and folk, um, bluegrass, all kinds of... Um, uh, roots Americana, and it was really through my love of Bob Dylan and, and songwriters um, of that era that I, I really got into that that scene and um, made uh, the band uh, River Rouge, which was a um, sort of Americana folk band. At times we were more acoustic, other times it was more rock and roll, uh, but it was definitely more of a rootsy. Uh, Americana uh, venture than um, than what I had been known for and what I'm and what I'm doing currently. 
you know, you sort of uh, touched on it. Uh, obviously, the uh, the music industry went through tremendous changes uh, during the course of uh, your career up to this point. You know, starting with the the channel that the real world was on was such an important part of the music industry when you were first on, and now it's really you know a, a channel that has uh, you know. <laughs> it's funny they didn't even air the real world reunion. You know, the real world reunion was for Paramount Plus. It's like Teen Mom and you know a lot of stuff like. Look, they—that's what they've chosen to do. But the music industry is so different, uh, you know. One because of that, but then also, you know, the 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 executives, the people in the the music industry, they had a big change. You know, I've uh, I've talked to the musician uh, Mark Slaughter uh, a number of times. Who he was really, uh, you know, he, his band was uh, synonymous with MTV when you were on the Real World, and he talks a lot about you know how there was this change, and he's like he's like I have no bad will for Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam or Nirvana. You know, they all made great albums. The problem was the music industry, who was just like, yeah, we want the next one of these now you know and uh what as as you saw it and you're talking about how we get to the point in the early 2000s where you know heavy music really doesn't exist unless you're already an established band you know it's not like you know slayer could still put out an album acdc could put out an album but new bands really in the early 21st century just really weren't happening were they Right. Well, you know, some of the new bands that were coming out, they were more of a hybrid of rock and rap and uh, that that sort of that kind of crossover, which was definitely opposite to the direction I was moving in, where it was really about uh, uh, guitar and, and songs and um, and uh, really, you know, I was moving in a, in a direction that, you know, was more acoustic. And things were were definitely going in a, a, a direction of samples and um, uh, uh, you know sort of hybrid of, of rock and rap wasn't really my thing. Um, so you know the and then as you were saying the the uh, uh, the music industry did change quite a bit. Uh, the advent of, uh, of file trading, uh, places like Napster that just decimated the um the record business um it really did change everything and uh and we're still feeling some of that you know everyone's still trying to get uh their bearings as far as where this business is headed it's uh i don't think we've recovered yet no and you know i think it's uh it, it, it's it's easy to not feel bad for the uh the record companies but uh, you know just the artists that you know it's like they had these really popular songs but people emailed the file to their friend for free you know or send it on AOL instant messenger uh it really you know and it's like yeah so they they didn't really uh do that well uh, in in those moments and you know it's funny because uh, at, at that time during the Napster, you know, just the, 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 this, this sort of sea change against Lars Ulrich of, uh, of Metallica for being out front about it, about what a bad thing it was. And it's like, well, he's not doing it for him. He's got yeah. his money already. It was for, you know, somebody like you putting out an album like that is, you know, could really appreciate selling it. And I think that there's still that some of that today, you know, because people are just like, Oh, I'll just put on whatever's on Spotify. Uh, if I want to hear a new song, I'm going to see if it's on YouTube, but also I think what it did and sort of more of the artistic sense is that the album as an art form, and I'm not even talking about physically that, which is an issue for me too. Cause I like to look through the liner notes, but actually listening to like 10 songs from an artist, most people don't want to even do that anymore. They're like, you know, I'll just, yeah. I'll just get the two songs I like. And, you know, I mean, even, you know, the, 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 all through the nineties, I mean, you think about, I, I mentioned Pearl Jam, that first Pearl Jam record, Nirvana, Nevermind, those whole albums were so great. But now if like something comes out, it's like, oh yeah, I like that one song, you know, yeah, and the concept of the album has been yeah. lost and it's a, it's a, it's a damn shame because, you know, the album uh, from an artist's point of view is the entire expression. That is the, that is the full uh, vision. It's not really so uh, much about the single. It's really about the body of work as a whole. And unfortunately, that has been uh, lost in the shuffle. It's a it's a shame. And hopefully, you know, uh, we'll 
see a return um, to to appreciate that a little bit. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of the upside for the the resurgence of vinyl is that uh, it's it just the you know one appreciating the the audio quality of it, but it's also like oh, I'm not going to drop the needle around for four different songs. I'm just going to listen to it. You know, right. and- it's too much trouble to get up. <laughs> from what you see yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I do want to talk about uh, the, the music you're doing now, but I'm also hugely interested in what you do for a living, you know, sort of in addition to music, uh, that you pitch music for film and television. Uh, you represent a, a very large uh, catalog of music. Now, I'm not going to ask you to go through a laundry list, but is there one or two that immediately come to mind of like, oh, I was really proud of getting this in that movie, that TV show, or like, oh, you know, a lot of people see this song in this movie and it really, you know, they're really merged forever because of uh, the work that you did. Sure. Yeah. No, there's been a couple of, uh, there's been a, a bunch of prominent placements that I've gotten over the years for, for our bands. And, and uh, I'd say, you know, some of the prouder moments were getting an, an iPhone spot um, for one of our hip hop uh, bands that um, uh, was in conjunction with the NHL. I'm, I'm a, lifelong hockey fan. Um, so uh, this was uh, this, this advertisement featured NHL, NHL players and, um, and the hip hop uh, group that that song was featured um, is from Canada. So they were, uh, <laughs> they were thrilled. It was a match. Oh, that's great. And yep. Uh, uh, that was a, that was a, a, a great placement. I'd say another one uh, that's um very recent. That's um, the new M Night Shyamalan movie that's coming out next month. It's called Old. Yeah, we have um, you know six songs on. Oh wow! On film that that I placed for um, uh, the new film Old. So that's you know it's uh it's just uh, exciting and it's you know it's a great way to I, I'm uh, as as the uh, as the record business has uh, uh, diminished. I'm I'm very proud to to work in the um, uh, music publishing field where uh, IP intellectual property is still valued, and I I help um, uphold that value. Yeah, I mean, we want to talk about lost art forms. The uh, the movie soundtrack. I mean, right around the time you were on the Real World, there was that singles uh, that Cameron Crowe movie, which is still a great album. And a couple of years later, the Clerk soundtrack, the Kevin Smith movie. You know, just all the music that you can get. You know, all from the same movie. Uh, you know, uh, as as we're talking, a lot of people this weekend are going to see the the new Marvel movie, uh, Black Widow. And there's a couple of uh, really great mo- moments of music. One of them is Don McLean's American Pie that they use in an interesting way. And I talked to him earlier this year, and he owns all of his publishing and all of his masters, which most people from the early 70s don't. That's you know? right. And uh, my audience is bored with this this tidbit, but I was so fascinated when he told me this. He copywrote the phrase American Pie. So when they went to go make those teenage comedy movies, American Pie, they tried to not pay him. But then he went to court and they had to pay him because it's like, it's like, well, no, I copyright. It's like, that's what it means that I copyright American Pie. It doesn't matter that you want to do a movie. So anyway, he has a usage in there. But there's also this really cool cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit by an artist. Honestly, I'd never heard of her name is Malia J. And, you know, preparing for talking to you, I was thinking, I feel like your job is probably a lot of. Oh, this is great. This needs to be in a movie, you know, just hearing something and and uh, being able to actually I mean, getting six songs in an M. Night Shyamalan movie, that's got to feel great. It, it does. And, you know, honestly, what, what my job mostly is, is, hey, I want to use this track, but I can't afford it. What do you have that's similar <laughs> or in style or, or nature? Yeah. What do you have that is that expresses the same sort of emotion or lyric or sound or whatever it is that they're trying to convey that is mostly what i'm doing because you know everybody wants um you know these these high ticket high priced uh tracks and and the budgets just unfortunately don't allow for that uh so i what i end up doing is 
is uh, uh, giving them more affordable options than I, the things that they I, I love that move by artists who, you know, re-record their biggest hits and then they own the masters and they're like, well, if you want this version of that song, it's a lot cheaper than the one that's from the, the big record company. That's you right. know, I know, I know before he sold his publishing D Snyder of twisted sister did that. And, and he would, it's like, you're, you're going to, you're going to save a lot of money if you buy the, the D Snyder re-record of we're not going to take it versus the, you know, the, the Arista records. You know, and, and the good ones, um, uh, make their their re-records, you know, almost uh, identical to the to the hit uh, yeah. on the major label, um, and uh, and and sometimes it's hardly noticeable. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I I, I, I two bands that I know that did that was uh, usually it has to do with problems with your record company. Uh, the early '90s band uh, Cracker did that. I could I listened to the re-records. I'm like, well, these just sound like the old ones. Alice Cooper did it too, and these yeah. were songs that were like 30 years old, you know, early. And I'm like, I don't know, it sounds the same to me. So. Yeah. That's impressive. You know, as you were talking, by the way, I was remembering something I hadn't thought about in forever. If you remember, like in the 80s, you'd watch like Knight Rider and they'd play like Walk Like an Egyptian, but it sure wasn't the Bangles singing it. They would like <laughs> hire somebody to do like the song, but it's like, yeah, but it's cheaper if we just have somebody else sing it. And you know, and and I, I don't I don't know that we get that, but what you're talking about, just sort of like getting similar music, you know, the AE just had this kiss documentary. And Peter Chris didn't want to license Beth to them. So they have like a musical arrangement similar to that under that section, but they don't actually play the song Beth. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, they don't like each other. Sure. But it's like, yeah, that's, that's a decent sized check that Peter just said no to, you know, it seems a little, um, yeah, yeah. He cut off his nose despite his face uh, <laughs> with that because really it's a, he could have, uh, and and probably should have uh, allowed for that license to go through. It's amazing to me that um, uh, in this day and age where music uh, is not um, uh, purchased, and um, I mean I've I've seen so many instances of of uh, artists uh, denying the usage of a of a track for one reason or another, um, and really uh, it's uh, it's counterproductive because. It, right now, I mean, there's only so many avenues to get your songs heard by uh, new audiences and certainly film and TV, video games, new media. That is the new radio. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, uh, it's a it's a it's just it's a fact of the, of the new business. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because you'll you'll hear about, you know, established artists will have a song that debuts. It premieres in a video game. And you know, the idea of like selling your song to a commercial being, you know, quote unquote, selling out is, well, now it's like, yeah, please. Like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones selling their songs for to like car commercials. You know, just, it, it seems so strange, but it's like, well, look, if they're doing it, why wouldn't you, you know? Just think about how many more people are gonna hear your song if it's in a, a car commercial or an iPhone commercial like you were talking about, you know? So I don't know, uh, but uh, let's talk about uh, Clean Break which is uh, the, the new song that you have. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, for those that are watching the video, we'll uh, start watching our video. They'll see a little bit of the video of the song, but talk a little bit about the song, where, you know, where it comes from, you know, just sort of writing it, what, what the clean break is in your mind when you start uh, putting that song together. Well, uh, clean break is the, uh, is the title track to um, our coming, our upcoming album. Um, it's uh it's a um, uh, sort of more of an up-tempo uh, modern rock track, um, uh, a little more, uh, a little more of the you know sort of modern edge to it as opposed to the last record, which was a little more straight up the middle meat and potatoes rock. Um, the new one, uh, uh, the new album, definitely features some more of my um, uh, punk rock influences and. Um, uh, it's a little more, um, uh, as I said, uh, a little more modern. Um, and, you know, lyrically, I mean, uh, I, I, I try not to spell out too, too uh, uh, specifically what, um, what I was thinking about when I wrote it. But, um, uh, you know, the, the idea behind a clean break is, uh, uh, I mean, it was definitely, um, uh, you know, kind of self-explanatory. I was I was definitely making a, a, a break 
uh, from, you know, what I, where I was. Yeah. Uh, now you, you reference that it's going to be the, the title track of an album. And, you know, we were talking about albums before I, I love sitting down with a new album. So where are you in the process of, you know, putting together more songs and ideally when would you hope an album would come out? Uh, and you said it'll be called clean break, just like the song. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, well, we're, in, we're mixing right now. Um, we've just got some um, finishing touches to put on a couple of tracks um, one of which is a, a like we're waiting on a string arrangement right now for one of the tracks, and um, uh, uh, the other tracks are just sort of uh, in mix mode. Um, and then it goes to master, and then we'll we'll put it out. Um, it's a uh, you know we'll we'll be releasing singles throughout though because as we uh, mentioned uh, previously, it's uh, right now the business is all about the single. And um, so, you know, we'll probably be putting out one or two more singles before the album is even out and available. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I love the, the album, uh, uh, the concept of an album. Um, but <laughs> I realize that, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm a bit of a, uh, uh, I'm in the minority. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, and uh, it's really all about the single right now. So yeah, um, no, no, absolutely. But you know, good singles lead to uh, lead to good albums. You know, I mean, when you I think about, agree. you know, when you, you know, there, there's those albums you can look at right around the same time. You know, you look at like Appetite for Destruction, In Excess, Kick, Def Leppard's Hysteria. Like each of those albums has like five or six singles on there. You know, so. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and uh, I, I th- that's obviously from a different era, but uh, the the idea that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. And like the non-album tracks are great, too. Uh, I think that uh, there are plenty of people who still appreciate that, you know, that uh, that it isn't like, you know, because, look, there was nothing worse that in, in the heyday of albums when you buy an album. It's like, yeah, there's three good songs on it, but I paid for like 12 songs you know so uh, yeah, yeah you know i'm I, i'm a, i love album cuts i love deep cuts i mean so often the um the album cuts are my favorite tracks uh, on an album and that's uh you know but but i come from you know a, an older era where where as we said albums were the the full expression of the artist and that the singles while they may represent what the album uh, uh, it, what, what may lay inside the album. It's, it's more of just, um, uh, uh, maybe a highlight. Um, uh, but the album is really what, you know, uh, the focus is. And, sure. um, and so those, those deep cuts on the album, that's, that's the, uh, that's what the artist is real. You know, my favorite track on sticky fingers is sway. And that I don't oh, know wow. that has ever been played on the radio, you know. So uh, you, you, uh, you could you could play it for Mick and Keith, and they'd be like, "Who is this? This is great, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right." That that to me is like the 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 quintessential album cut because it's just such a great song, it, never played on the radio ever. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard it on the radio, or or you know, Exile uh, uh, on Main Street, a double album full of album cuts. I mean, there's yeah. like. The, the the that entire double album had one single it was a massive single uh uh, uh but uh you know it it's a full double album full of album cuts yeah and, and and look we could we could uh spend another half an hour talking about the choices that uh radio satellite or otherwise makes and it's like yeah Yo, you have all these great songs like why aren't you playing a couple other songs from exile on main street you know does anybody really not that satisfaction's not a great song but do i need to hear it again you know maybe play it once a week and then mix in a couple other stone songs. I'm not telling you to do anything crazy, you know, more. <laughs> but uh, so that'll be great that the, uh, the album will come out. Uh, and I, you know, as we're talking about albums, I was just wondering, is there an album where it's hard for you to, to not just sit down and listen to the whole thing? You know, you're like, all of them, you know, I mean, I think uh, yeah. road is a, is a good example of that yeah. where I just, you know, I can't, yeah. I can't, Put on one song. I, I I hang to- on, hang on. It's just, I uh, just have to wait for Her Majesty, and then we can go. You know? <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's great to think about some of those, you know, and and actually just listening to them all the all the way through, you know, for sure. Like, you know, Aerosmith Rocks is always one that comes to my mind of just, uh, you know, so- songs that you know 
your most casual Aerosmith fans have never heard a song like home tonight, which is one of their best songs, just in my mind, you know, Love it. yeah, that, that, and uh, you see me crying from uh toys in the attic. It's just like, yep. Nobody knows those songs, but they're Uncle fantastic. Salty. Yeah. Uncle oh, like Uncle Salty. Yeah. Well, so great. Yeah. Never heard it on the radio. No, of course. Yeah. We'd love it. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, Andre, I uh, really look forward to uh, finding out more about the album. And um, I, I did a quick glance, and I couldn't find you on social media. So you tell you tell the audience where can they find you? Uh, obviously, you're on YouTube, and it's just uh, Andre C O M E A U for our audio listeners. I want to make sure that they that they know that you say it like Perry Como, but uh, it's spelled uh more like commu uh, just uh, for their <laughs> sake yeah it's a uh, french spelling um yeah uh, yeah you know you can find me on uh, andrecomomusic.com uh as well as uh, on facebook andre como music and spotify andre como um as well as the river rouge albums are all up on spotify as well um the um uh uh twitter you know i'm on all the social media platforms and it's usually it's either my name, Andre Como, or Andre Como Music. Okay, great. Well, we we started with the real world, and I want to end with the real world because, as you mentioned, you did the reunion, and you guys did that at the beginning of this year, or was that uh, last well, year? Yeah. That was yeah, January, so January of this year. And, and I want to mention it, it yeah. will actually play on MTV. Uh, Paramount Plus has an exclusive at the moment, but um, it will be airing on MTV after after that exclusivity. Now, now, see, that's, that's some very smart corporate synergy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like how they put the VMAs on all the Viacom channels. Now they're like, yeah, just, uh, just put it on everything, you know, right. put it on Nickelodeon. It doesn't matter. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, um, I watched, uh, I, I watched the first one because uh, I, I was just very interested to see. And it seemed like everybody was legitimately surprised. You didn't know you were going back to the loft from the original show, right? You just knew you were doing right. a reunion. They, so, kept, they kept us in the dark as to, I mean, we were, all of us were asking, where is it going to be? Where's it going to yeah. be? And uh, uh, it wasn't until they, the driver dropped us off at the, at the old location that we knew this was in fact going to be at our old loft. And what was it like to just uh, walk around the, the same walls after 30 years, but with the same people as well, you know? Great. I mean, you know, it's so funny. I, I've likened it to um, going to a school you've graduated from many years later, you know, <laughs> right. an institution that you, that you spent so much time at and uh, you know, so many of the things, so much of it is the same, but you've changed, you know? Yeah. So that's, I would liken it to going to a school you graduated from and, and returning, uh, being much, you know, older and wiser, but, uh, yeah, we're still the same. Yeah, as uh, also, uh, as a, as a parent, I have a, an almost six-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. I liked seeing uh, specifically, I remember you and Julie both doing FaceTime and showing off your kids to everyone. And, uh, that, that to me is like just sort of the best part. It's like, you get to catch up with these people and it's like, yeah, look at these, these mini humans that uh, I've created now, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's uh, without question. My daughter Sophie is the star of the. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, she's uh, she's such a little little monster. Yeah, it's great. It was and it was uh, a real uh, pleasure to to be able to um, you know introduce her to uh, the the fans of the show and and viewers. Yeah, well, that had to that had to be a blast. It seemed like it, uh, you know, just getting to do it again. And because it's not like, you know, if they had done a okay, we're all going to get in a, a studio. Basically, if it had been like the Friends reunion, where two hours you show clips and you talk, that could have been interesting. But actually, putting everybody back as I think just bringing it to the next level. And uh, it's uh, I, I think that uh, you know whoever whatever it cost to get that loft again, it was well yeah. worth it. I think you know. You know, you, you were breaking up there. I had oh, okay. a little trouble hearing the um, uh, you're freezing at times. But um, uh, you know, it was uh, it was great, and it was great to see everybody. We actually, you know, we have a a, a real bond between the um, uh, that original cast. My, you know, I consider them good, close, personal friends, um, and um, you know, we all shared such a unique experience um, uh, being involved in this. <clears throat> first modern day reality show that uh, featured our lives. And, um, and so it was great uh, catching up with everyone and, and uh, seeing where everyone has 
has uh, gone to and uh, how people have changed mostly for the better. And um, it was a, a really, uh, uh, it was it was great to see them. And, you know, as I said, we're, we're very, uh, we're still very close and I look forward to seeing them uh, uh, the next time that we do get together. Yeah. Well, uh, it's also great to be able to catch up, you know, just as, as viewers, because now we know that, uh, you have this, uh, this, this great new song, uh, clean break that's out there on your YouTube and the uh, album of the same name coming soon. Uh, it, you know, I think that, uh, we're in a good spot with the pandemic right now. P bands are touring, uh, you know, even here in Los Angeles, where I live, I, I'm, I'm told that uh, tickets that I have for concerts are actually going to happen when I didn't think they were. Uh, <laughs> so uh, are there plans uh, around the release to hit the road a little bit or uh, what, what are the plans in terms of uh, playing? Yes, live? there are actually. As a matter of fact, I'm, we have an album release show coming up in September on, on the 9th of September. Um, that will be our album release at the Viper Room in Hollywood. Um, and I uh, would love to have you come down and uh, yeah, absolutely. the band. Um, uh, and we will be doing some uh, uh, touring as well. Uh, uh, we're working on that currently right now. Um, hopefully uh, the the uh, Midwest, the East Coast, and uh, we're, we're based here in Los Angeles as well. So I'm sure we'll be doing some West Coast shows. Um, it's... Uh, uh, you know, fingers crossed that the COVID uh, situation is in fact in the rear view uh, and that it is behind us. Um, but uh, we are going to, you know, uh, hell or high water. We're going to be in your town playing and, and uh, uh, you know, playing the new songs and and, uh, you know, getting it out there for everyone. Yeah. Well, uh, as you said earlier, Andre Como Music is uh, where you can find it on the website and uh, either Andre Como or Andre Como Music uh, on social media. Andre, it's uh, been great chatting with you. I look forward to talking again soon, maybe around the uh, album release. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Christian. It was my pleasure. Screaming I'm a vengeance lucid dreaming Over the mountain under mystic spells Meditating on the stars Hear me Promise a warning Darkness coming, mesmerized under restless skies. Gone.